What I found is necessary to help us all make progress is to have a sense of profound opportunity and radical transformation, and also just to surround ourselves with wonderful people that help fill our sails, that help collaborate, that are like-minded in their determination to make that positive future. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute, in which we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, and social artists, people who care deeply and create on behalf of humanity. And my guest today is the wonderful Phoebe Barnard. Phoebe's vision is of a wiser, kinder, diverse civilization and a still diverse planet supporting it. A global change and biodiversity scientist with 34 years working on the African national development. She's also a team builder, conflict resolver, women's leadership mentor, and policy strategist. She founded and led science-based national policy and strategy programs on biodiversity, climate change, and environmental futures in Namibia and South Africa since 1994, and is now working as the Stable Planet Alliance's CEO, full professor at the University of Washington's Center for Environmental Politics and School of Interdisciplinary Arts and Science, an associate researcher at the Fitzpatrick Institute, an African Climate and Development Initiative of the University of Cape Town. And now here's Phoebe. Okay, welcome Phoebe Barner to What Could Possibly Go Right? You know, I'm starting our conversation a bit differently from my usual on-ramp, and it's with two images and then one question. So the first image, perhaps you could call me a social naturalist, observing people in their habitat of other people and intuiting who they are by how they behave. And since meeting you a few years ago, I've been drawn to the song you sing in the morning chorus of activists, thinkers, and leaders in this time of unraveling, you have sort of a lilting positivity in the treetops, calling people to, to look up, to flutter up off the ground of despondency, to join in. It's not the kind of shallow positivity that ignores the dire warnings from scientists. In fact, one of your hats is representing the scientist's warning to humanity into action. So, and then now, so the second image, and it's that I am in a large foreign city and somber people are scurrying in and out of the metro and along the streets. And I, I feel lost and I'm, I'm looking for someone I might tag along with who both knows the score and seems to know her way. And to me, you've been that spotlighted person in the somber, busy, head down crowd of sustainability. All this to say that I am curious what you see from your treetop or from your eyes raised above the fray, not simply your six key actions for climate remediation or three novel technologies that can pull our chestnuts out of the climate fire, but what light you are seeing on the horizon that keeps you joyfully engaged. So with that introduction, here is the question of the hour. In the midst of all that seems to be going awry, Phoebe, what could possibly go right? <laughs> Vicky, I absolutely love just the fundamental question that you pose to all of us that you've interviewed and your incredible, vibrant 
um, approach and determination to look for that in, in everybody and in everything and in our future. <laughs> Thank you for saying those kinds of things. It is a weird tightrope that we all walk in these times of dizzying change, this crossroads for civilization. And I, I do feel just lucky through chance to have the kind of DNA that I inherited from my parents, especially my mother, who was a kind of 1950s housewife, but determined to find the happy medium and the commonalities in everybody. My father, of course, was much quieter and more cerebral, but my mom, bless her heart, didn't have a great deal to worry about in life. And so she somehow gave me that DNA that enabled me to work on biodiversity loss and climate change in Africa at times of wars and famine and poverty and illiteracy and rape and climate migration and everything else, and still managed to keep on trucking. <laughs> and so a lot of that treetop I don't know, liltingness or whatever you said, um, is, is just my jackpot of DNA for which I'm profoundly grateful. <laughs> I inherited my stump legs from my mom too, but you know, <laughs> I used to remember her for her cheerfulness. And, and yet she was also a woman who would cry at sad news on the news in the sixties. And I remember that. So I can be profoundly emotional about the challenges that we face too. But <laughs> so, you know, taking that personality, this uncomfortable but interesting and, and kind of happy blend of personality into a life as a, a career, as a, a biodiversity scientist, a climate change scientist, a policy strategist, working on national development in Africa and globally, it enabled me to soldier through times of profound ecological angst, times of profound social distress, and know that at some level, my contribution was at least significant in some small place and for some small duration of time and that I could make an impact of some degree just by keeping focused on the good. And I still feel that way. I almost feel like you gave me a, a prescription for sanity in an insane world, you know, because it's not just your mom, but you said that you're blessed with good work, that you actually believe that in some small way can make an impact, if only a small way, and if only for a period of time. I mean, I wonder if, if that, which has a certain level of faith in it, rather than the level of certainty, like, here's my hammer, there's the nail, I'm going to pound it, and it's all going to be, it's all going to hang together. It's this feeling of being engaged in work that you recognize is good work that maybe has some small influence for some small period of time. I mean, I don't know how to formulate this question. Is it that the, 
the work itself, absent you know, a driving anxiety for success, is the work itself a salve for your soul? Without a doubt. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not so much focused on success, although, of course, we all have to have goals and a vision in what we do. I was profoundly lucky to almost fall into some incredible pots of uh career privilege. And by that, I mean it in its most humble estimation. Uh, I was incredibly privileged to be able to work in these two countries at the crossroad, at their own social and political crossroads. Namibia, at the dawn of its independence from colonial rule by South Africa and England and Germany before that. And South Africa, at the dawn of its democratic transition away from apartheid. And both of those uh, opportunities were incredibly lovely. And I, you know, was very conscious of myself as an outsider originally, although three years turned into 34, (laughs) that um, ultimately I came from outside and was able to dive in and be embraced by both of those countries to be able to play a role, you know, however small um, in in their their short and medium-term evolution. In Namibia, I was able to set up and run that country's first national programs on biodiversity and climate change, for example. And, you know, not many young outside women get those chances. And I realized how wonderful it was partly because I was able also to do a lot of mentorship and teaching and so on along the way. I had academic jobs that could feed into my government policy and planning and strategic national development work, but also just because you realize that so few countries are as mindful as those two countries could be at those times in asking themselves, where do we want to go now as a society? And how are we going to get there from here? And the more I have moved back to the States and, you know, find myself, (laughs) as with all of us, observing the kind of horror of lurching um, social change in in the U.S., and it almost feels like um, deja vu with post-apartheid South Africa in many ways, um, the, the more I realize what a privilege it was to be surrounded by people in a blank slate moment, a real tabula rasa saying, you know, where do we want to go from here? How do we design that society? Where do we want to be in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? How often do most older countries do that? So that that gave me enormous wind in my sails and also just working with wonderful people. And so as we go forward into the future, I think that's what I found uh, is necessary to help us all make progress, is to have a sense of profound opportunity and radical transformation, and also just to surround ourselves with wonderful people that help fill our sails, that help collaborate, that are like-minded in their determination to make that positive future, that kinder, wiser, more 
humble, more sustainable civilization ahead happen? Mm. Yeah, I, I feel like I have had similar opportunities. Um, it wasn't Namibia or South Africa, but you know, I'm a boomer and I fledged into a time when it, you know, some of us caught the wind of we can change the world. And I really, I drank the Kool-Aid on that one. I really, I really thought that we could, we could swing the mindset, you know, sort of, we could swing it pretty far that, that things had loosened up. And so it's been, it's taken a lot to accept that it's now we're in a different time. Young people who are activists are fledging into a different time where it feels like the opportunity, you know, the, the openings are less and the, and the, um, the, the burden is greater. But um, so I think that's another key for me that I'm taking away is that I've had the privilege, you know, and to really consider it a privilege um, to have operated in, in times of when it really did look like, you know, major change was afoot and that, you know, you know, like, um, you know, individuals could participate and, and really make a difference. That's a very heady and exciting uh, experience. So, so now here we are, you know, and it's like, we're, (laughs) I'm a little older than you, but we're women of a certain age, you know, (laughs) have many years behind us and we're looking ahead. Yeah, um, my hair is whiter, but I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, but I, my years are more. Um, yeah, so, so, I think that you work a lot at the level of of policy of, you know, of of trying to intervene in the in like the United Nations systems, the SDGs. You know, like you're working at the global policy level. Is that? Where, if you were taking a look at where are you pressing on the systems with the anticipation that the system is going to like yield something? Yeah. So I, I think the last few years have really shown us quite a lot of interesting stuff about the relevant scales to intervene on certain things. And uh, I've always been someone who's uh, by nature been interested in ping ponging between local and global issues. You know that I'm involved in transition movement, just as you have been, um, about community cohesion and resilience to shocks. And I, I always get engaged wherever I live in terms of setting up community structures and nonprofits and <laughs> initiatives and projects. And sometimes that takes off really well because the community is just there and the and and the protons and electrons just combine nicely. And sometimes it just falls flat. But I've always had an interest in that. And as a scientist, I always had a certain level of real interest in the fine-grained mechanisms that make change happen, whether it was evolution and behavior, because I started my life as an ornithologist working on birds, or or whether um, it had to had to do with societal change. I've always been interested in looking at the fine grain, but I always had a bigger picture uh, perspective and determination to, to drive change. 
And so for years, I worked at the global level on, you know, negotiating the Convention on Biological Diversity, um, being on the board of the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, uh, the Global Invasive Species Program, things like that. And, and yet there are a whole bunch of levels in between. I worked very much at the national level in Namibia and South Africa and at the bioregional level also during that time. And, and even since I've come back to the US, um, but there are also levels of governance and community between the very local and the very global. And so part of the reason that we wrote that paper last year for COP26, uh, World Scientists' Warnings into Action, Local to Global, was trying to give some, uh, A, momentum, and B, guidance about what could be done at different levels to really tip the balance of action into a more coherent process of change. And of course, that was one paper out of a number, but very few scientists' papers, and ours was authored by scientists, economists, and governance people, but very few of those kinds of papers are really getting stuck into the kind of action that they want to see happen, and where are the pivot points. And ours was really just a start on that. Mm -hmm. But that, for me, reflected my interest in different scales. And that's also something I guess that we picked up in the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, which was this multi-scalar assessment of the status and trends of ecosystems around the world and their capacity to support human health, human economies, human well-being. Do, do these, I worked um, in the 90s on the, when they, during the Clinton administration, um, when they, oh God, I can't even remember what they called it, but the, you know, he he had an initiative around sustainability, um, mm -hmm. sustainable development. And I worked on the population and consumption task force. Yes. Um, I wish I'd known you then. <laughs> I, I, was, I was more, I was a little more severe. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think even with Neva Goodwin, who I think she was part of that, you know, and I think she works with you as well. Um, Anyway, I mean, worked, 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 you know, down to like the, you know, like the present tense or past tense, where's the comma, where's the period, yep. Yep. you know, like these UN, UN documents in the 90s, there were so many, there's the population and, you know, um, there's the population conference, Tim Worth, we influenced that, my little team tried to do that. Yeah. So I was in that system where it felt like you could, you could produce a document and it would make a difference. And I, I, I don't want to be cynical, but I just do recognize that we we pour our hearts and souls and you know like you know education and everything into those documents, and they don't seem no to. It, it's true. They 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 don't, and that that's part of the long process of getting me to sort of detach myself from science and public policy, and get more into the filmmaking and activism mm -hmm. realm. And that that's a long walk, <laughs> and yeah. um, particularly in government science, because I've worked in governments for most of my career with one leg in academia, particularly for government scientists, that is a huge no-no. 
you're meant to be policy policy relevant, but not policy prescriptive. That's mm -hmm. the favorite phrase of my dear friend, Sir Bob Watson, who chaired all of these relevant panels, the IPCC and the Intergovernmental Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystems, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so we were really supposed to sit in that good little box of scientists. But fundamentally, we know how ineffective that's been. And whatever we write, it doesn't stir people where our primate brains need to be stirred and where our hearts and our guts need to be stirred. Now, I've always had a real love for the power of film. I think many of us picked that up as a kid. But um, I think the stars started to align when, when I left a long marriage to a scientist and met my new husband, a filmmaker. And so that has allowed me to, I guess, detach from the things that I felt weren't working so much. Still doing a little bit of that because it, it is helpful to have some credentials or, or at least some vague <laughs> value as a scientist to be able to inform choices ahead. There is definitely a place for science in the future. Um, it's just that we have been shouting louder um, in, you know, in bigger font, and it hasn't really had the impact on people because we haven't been getting to the fundamental root causes, human behavior, human numbers, and human appetites. And so now I work on humans, and it's, it's exasperating, of course. <laughs> humans are complex, messy, incredibly contrary creatures, but this is where we have to focus our energies in the mm. future. Many of us know that. It just took me a long time to jump ship. I think we've all been, you know, swimming in our lanes, um, yeah. thinking we were getting somewhere. We're just doing laps in a pool. You know, that way. So, yeah. you know, it's like, so there's this, like, there's a sense now, and it's, it's a little bit exciting and also dangerous. I mean, there's a sense of like, where now? You know, how we had our comfortable theories of change mm -hmm. and we applied ourselves to that. Mm -hmm. um, but in the meantime, it seems that the game board is a little bit different. Uh, and I appreciate what you're saying that it's like the, you know, it's time for the artists. It's time for the magicians. It's time for the soul workers. It's time, you know. It's time to bring a lot more um, intelligences to bear on this somehow. Mm. Um, I wonder if, you know, since I'm sort of embedded, I'm stuck in this, like in the United States for better or worse, I'm, I'm, I'm formed in this mentality of being an American. Um, do, you, do, you, do you sense that these same forces, you know, human behavior, human appetites, um, human, I think it's behavior, appetites, and beliefs. I, I don't sure where the third one was. Do you feel like these are, are pretty universal, that they're operating in China, China and India and Africa? And, or are we sort of uniquely affected by our, you know, <laughs> cowboy mentality? Tribalism is everywhere and entitlement is not everywhere, but it grows quickly. And that's, that's the degree to which 
the USA at the moment seems to me to be out on one edge of a continuum. But we've never been, uh, what's that word? Uh, uh, exceptional. <laughs> Human uh, American exceptionalism. Oh, my God. Uh, sadly, the U.S. lost decades in its own self satisfaction and complacency, mm. that it could not learn from other regions or countries. And therefore, we've really slept, uh, s- slipped behind quite a few decades in many areas. And in fact, in my humble opinion, Africa and um, many indigenous societies around the world have a great deal to teach a, a lot of things to the US. However, I do think that humanity is full of universals and that offers us all kinds of hope. And it off also creates an incredibly steep hill. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, the, the very premise of your podcast, what can possibly go right is uh, for me, uh, the kind of thing that you answer after you take a deep <laughs> kind of stomach breath, mm. uh, what could possibly go right? We have an incredible challenge, the scale of the challenge and the number of dimensions of the really radical transformative change that's needed over the next decade or two is is truly daunting. We all know that it's political, it's economic, it's social and cultural and religious, it's behavioral, psychological, and even it's, um, it's even technological. And for each of those things, you know, we can think of a million things that are, are the, the elements of that dauntingness, you know, in, in our economy, for example, you can't just pull the global economy over to the pit stop and <laughs> and transform it uh, without a lot of people losing their jobs and dying and not being fed. Uh, so how do we tinker with it while the car is driving? This is John, my husband's uh constant refrain phoebe you've got to, you've got to think of ways to you know make this radical transformation happen without the system collapsing into disarray which will cause a great deal of misery and of course these days we're all understanding the magnitude of the challenge that trying to find stability for our climate and stability for our planet also definitely is about civilizational stability as well. And when one of those things, the the golden thread gets pulled out and the the tapestry becomes destabilized, not to mix my metaphors, but (laughs) we, we have to think in these societal and civilizational terms. So for, you know, our global economy, has profound vested interests. The 1%, even the 10%, you know, the 50%, given the middle class, which is burgeoning now, there are huge vested interests. There's a lot at stake. People do not go willingly into a future that might leave them in a scary place that they don't yet understand. So how do we 
help people understand that, you know, um, sometimes being risk embracing is the only way to survive and that a change of our economy could bring amazingly uh, beneficial things in so many ways that we've been lacking. You know, look at our society and our economy and, and what it's doing to our stress levels, road rage, uh, opioid addiction, all these kind of social ills that we know about. So on, on the, you know, what could possibly go wrong side, there's no shortage of things to list, but what could possibly go right? I think it's a matter of messaging and visioning and um, I guess visualizing for people about the alternatives that can come from a post-growth mentality. So each of these levels of change, economic, political, social, cultural, social, cultural, religious, uh, spiritual, psychological, and, and, and technological, and more. E- each of those things has daunting challenges, but also immense opportunities. So it's those things that I see from the treetops, as you said, where, well, I'm singing my little song <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and really trying to help people kind of gird their loins and make peace with profound change and just try to be nimble and fleet-footed as we go through a period of turbulence keeping people focused on the importance of community, collaboration, universality, and I guess for many people, faith of some kind, Mm -hmm. because those things will see people through if we create that expectation. But look at what happens when people go to a movie. You know, most of the movies here are post-apocalyptic films, or their planet-saving films, or their, you know, warrior films. And we get fed a lot of contrary, discouraging, um, even Hollywood films tend to be relentless with this dystopian future. But it doesn't have to be this way. The world doesn't have to end this way. You know, you always hear me saying, we can change it. And we've got to believe that we are changing it because history operates in these pendulum swings. And so we have to be mindful that we don't end up as we're seeing in the US right now, I think swinging wildly back towards the 1950s because some people felt alienated by power and autonomy and money perhaps being taken away from them. We've got to be mindful about those pendulum swings, but the power of the future can be messaged in a very much better way than we have been doing it. So a lot of people feeling extremely disconsolate about a dark future, it's partly because they've been alienated by the thought that they can actually change that. I've never been, <laughs> I've never been um, saddled by um, lack of confidence on those lines, luckily. (laughs) I'm convinced that we can change it. And, you know, I'm not a Pollyanna either. I know how daunting the situation is. 
Yeah, interesting listening to you, and 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 we should probably should start turning a corner to to finishing this. Um, sure. You know, so so we be we're fed dystopian stories, and 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 basically a lot of the data is dystopian. You know, the IPCC, its reality is is getting pretty dystopian when you come right down to it. Dystopian in relation to the world that we are accustomed to. You know, I think part of what we're starting to realize is that the planet has never been stable. Mm-hmm. You know, the planet is always in it's it's a dynamic system, and that we're part of a dynamic system. That we have a such a little slice of of the dynamism that we think, oh, this is stability. This is reality. We've had ten thousand years of that. You know, Holocene stability, and yeah. that's all that we've ever known as a civilized species. Civilized. Exactly. And, um, and 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 we don't know how we'll cope with anything else, but we, we will don't kind of cope. Somehow. And the opposite side, I find that there are people trying to offer utopian narratives, you know, sort of like normative visions of, you know, humanity on its best behavior in partnership with our higher angels, or you know, like <laughs> like things that that seem like a big leap given the complexity of what we're in. Mm. But there's something, there's a there there in which you're talking about, which is atopia or something. It's like, it is, it is that being in relationship with reality as it unfolds, holding the most generous and positive intent and anticipation well, one can, you know, it's just, there's something about that. I, I, I've often said that if I'm going to have a something on my tombstone, which I will not have a tombstone because, because <laughs> I can have a green burial and I'm just going to have a bench, but, um, or maybe uh, something else will happen. I'll, I'll die at sea or something. But I, you know, my, my tagline is it's a relational world. We treat the world as subject object world of things we ourselves are things, but it's, it's that relational field, which is reality. And I think that for me, that's my, you know, Rosetta stone, if you will, that's sort of the thing that I touch when I'm trying to orient toward what am I trying to say with my life, not necessarily even my words, but with my life. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to invite you to just give us your Rosetta Stone, your your one liner or your ten, you know, not the thing that 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 touchstone, that thing you have in your pocket that you rub when you try to find your way in in the thicket. Look, I've said before that um, I think these times call upon us to be the best kind of person that we can be. Uh, but many people will not feel called. They'll be reactive. They will be violent. They will be fearful. Mm-hmm. And with 8 billion people on this planet, we need to expect that it will be messy. But I do believe that there are a lot of people who will pull themselves into that better place. Um I don't think that we can have any kind of happy camper ideas about the society of the future without being fundamentally 
grounded in the idea that it will be significantly smaller human enterprise than we have now. We cannot succeed at, uh, at, at any of the things that we're doing to stabilize climate change, to slow and then reverse the uh, extinction of species and the degradation of ecosystems, the rate of plastics pollution, the you know unemployment rate, food and water insecurity, any of those things. We will not succeed with any of those until we can draw down and stabilize and then decrease our numbers and our appetites. Mm. And anyone who feels that we can get by without that is living in cloud cuckoo land. We all know that, but they don't know it. That's the problem. <laughs> they don't know it. Mm. And so I, my little Rosetta touchstone is that the people who are clinging on to the ways of our present civilization will come round in most cases as reality becomes increasingly clear. We know this about human behavior. Very few people scan the horizon, see what's coming up ahead and adapt ahead of time. Most people just think, oh shit, this is really, <laughs> they, they weren't joking. Right. So I think most people will come around. The people that are scanning the horizon are either a bunch of us or they are the 10th of 1% building bunkers or flying off to Mars. Well, good luck to them for that. <laughs> um, I think a significant number of the rest of us will adapt, um, but it is very much the arena of injustice and privilege and geography and aridity that determines all of these things. So as we prepare for hundreds of millions of climate migrants, we have to be very intentional about how will we respond to that. So when Ron DeSantis just tries to score political points by flying off a bunch of innocents to Martha's Vineyard, uh, and the the uh, community there responds bravely and beautifully to welcoming people despite no advance warning. Nonetheless, we're all going to be called upon to bring out our most profound humanity. Mm -hmm. And that's our choice. Reactive, proactive, human, subhuman. Thank you, Phoebe, so much for your, you know, for taking us sort of behind the scenes in how you think about things, not just the what you've thought about and that you'd like us to think about, but, you know, how you think about it and how you stay in your own humanity. I love hearing others talk about this because we all learn from each other in yeah. those realms. I've learned so much from you on that line, Vicki. Yeah, we do. We learn from one another. This is my secret agenda for my podcast is I get to hang out with people who can help me, you know, be as solid as I can. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. 
Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.